From my home office, on behalf of the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm your host and Prindle Institute director, Andy Cullison, and for each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or an issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that make it hard to get along with others in the workplace. And before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise, but as an ethicist, I can introduce you to other cool ethicists who know more about stuff than me. And Allison Bailey is joining us today. Uh, She is a professor of philosophy at Illinois State University, where she directs the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies program. Allison, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. So our case today involves Bethany, and she calls together uh, several employees and and wants to have a meeting to to have a conversation about changes she'd like to see in the organization. And, And she says, I would like us all to take a good hard look at any ways in which our company makes life more difficult for or discriminates against black employees. And she starts to introduce concepts like systemic racism and privilege And in the back of the room, there's a guy named Chad. He raises his hand, and uh, when called on, he says, look, don't you think people of color have privileges too? You know, in fact, in some cases, they're more likely to get the job or a promotion because of our interest in diversifying in a team. And, And at some point, shouldn't we just acknowledge that no system is perfect and be comfortable with the fact that we've made significant advances? And while, yeah, there are still problems, I think we're actually doing pretty good. So Bethany's a bit at a loss as to how to advance the conversation when she's getting this kind of resistance right away. And Allison, we uh, we asked you to come on this show because when we looked at this case, this case seems to involve something that I've seen in, in a lot of your writing, uh, a concept that's called epistemic pushback. And so I guess first and foremost, does that seem to you like what's going on in this case? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love your example because it's, um, um, you know, there's something that happens in the classroom and in the workplace. And it just happens in a lot of conversations uh, where folks are talking about race, especially white people trying to talk about race. So the phenomenon, just to give you like a, a lead into it, um, this is an example of white talk. Um, and white talk is a kind of discourse that white people uh, move into when they feel uncomfortable. So it's like, you know, women are survivors of sexual harassment. Well, men are harassed too. Or, you know, people of color suffer microaggressions. Well, white people have that too. Well, black lives matter. Well, blue lives matter. So they keep moving around. So that movement has an epistemic dimension, right? And for our listeners, the term epistemic comes from a Greek word meaning knowledge or understanding. So if you think about the term epistemic pushback, it's someone pushing back or resisting understanding or coming to have knowledge that someone is trying to share with you. So um, when when Chad just says, but people of color have privilege too, um, the question is, why did he go there? And the answer is, this is a form of epistemic pushback. So actually, uh, the term epistemic pushback is a shorthand term for what I call privilege preserving epistemic pushback. And so this is a, a, a move that uh, members of dominant groups, in this case, uh, Chad, <laughs> is making in this conversation that preserve privilege. So he's moved the conversation back onto um, a conversational home turf or an epistemic home turf where he feels comfortable. So let me say a little bit about that. Um, 
privilege preserving epistemic pushback is a variety of uh, willful ignorance that dominant groups habitually deploy during our conversations on race that are trying to make social justices invisible. So one thing Bethany's doing is saying, look, there's something I think that we have to be curious about in the workplace. And he's pivoted it back to, well, everybody has privilege, so it's not an issue. And so the conversation falls flat. So I like to think of privilege preserving epistemic pushback, or just I'll just call it epistemic pushback, as a ground-holding reflex that protects a worldview and it resists um, opportunities to learn about uh, racism or injustice. So it kind of, again, pivots its back to comfort. So it also is a family of um, cognitive, effective, verbal, and embodied things. So I just don't want to say it, it comes from the voice. Because if we were to do um, a short video of the scenario you've put together, you might look at Chad's body and see how he feels uncomfortable or he sits back in his chair and crosses his arms and looks defiantly. So that, that privilege-preserving pushback is not only vocal, it's not only conversation, but you can read it in people's bodies and the tone of their voice. And um, it's got an affective root. So it's rooted in emotional feelings of my worldview is being challenged and I need to do something to push back. Correct me if I'm wrong. At least in many cases of epistemic pushback, it has the outer look of wanting to engage in rational debate and dialogue. And it, it, has, the, it has the veneer of wanting to be like, hey, I'm a rational person and we're just engaged in rational dialogue. And, and on the outside, it looks like that. But you say internally, it often has something else going on that has very little to do with wanting to get to the truth of the matter or something like that. That's, that's a, re a really nice summary. And I like your use of the word veneer because I think that captures it really well. It's coming from a different place. What is that place? What, what's going on there usually? So often uh, what people want to do is just immediately push back when they feel discomfort. So I think unlike critical thinking or uh, honest open conversations where people listen to one another, and the conversation goes like this. I listen to what Bethany says, and I think about it, and then I ask a question to make sure I understand her, and then I, I go over to her epistemic home turf, and we have a discussion. What Chad does is say, I don't want to listen to you. Come over to my turf. I want to talk about why everybody has privilege. So that doesn't really come from you know, him saying, I'm a skeptic <laughs> or uh, I'm a critical thinker. That comes from, I'm scared of where you're going, and I want to pull you back. So I think the roots of this are very effective and they, they kind of tap into the fight, flight or freeze responses that we have when we feel uncomfortable. It has a, and it has a feel of like whataboutism, right? It doesn't actually like she said there's systemic racism. It didn't deny that, right? It doesn't deny it's it's saying like there's just problems all over the place, right? It wasn't saying that the, you're right. She said I've, she said I've identified a problem and there's been no attempt to say that there's not a problem, right? You haven't actually argued against that point, which is what you would expect in rational dialogue, right? Yes. You, you would expect there to be engaging in the territory, as you said, in the turf that she's laid out. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction that resistance doesn't always look the same. So um, if Bethany were to say, look, we've got a problem here with discrimination and microaggressions in the workplace, it's something I want us to explore. Um, it's in all our interest to do this. <laughs> And, you know, somebody might resist by saying, well, I don't think we do have a problem. 
Uh, so they do push, but they push back directly on the claim. But they they have heard Bethany and they're just saying, you know, I disagree with your analysis of the workplace. I treat everybody the same. And they might go into colorblind discourses of, you know, my best friend is, is Asian American or, or I treat everybody the same. But they've engaged that claim. So what uh, Chad's response does is does not engage that claim. It tries to pull it onto an epistemic home turf where he's safe. You have this article, uh, which we'll link to in the show notes, that talks about strategies in the classroom. Uh, could you say a little bit about what do you do in the classroom when you want to talk about difficult issues related to race and this kind of stuff comes up? How do you navigate that territory? Okay, so let's start, um, I guess, in my workplace. <laughs> and then we, I think there's some parallels we can draw to, to most workplaces here. But as a, a philosophy professor, um, I have my students read a lot of articles that are very challenging and um, bring up a lot of pushback from the students because students are, are, are young and they want to understand and they want to argue well. And so a lot of times they push back. So one case that happened to me uh, a number of years ago was I had my students read uh, in the wake of the Me Too movement, a famous article by Claudia Card about uh, it's called Rape as a Terrorist Institution, where she basically argues that living in a culture that doesn't take sexual violence seriously creates an environment where women just have to navigate the world with fear. So that's what terrorism does. It makes people live people in fear. So rape is a terrorist institution. And that's her argument. And so when I, when I put up on the board for my students, uh, Claudia Card argues uh, in her essay that the threat of rape is analogous to terrorism. How would you respond to that? And so students are eager to discuss. And some students will say, oh, I agree with Card. I really do think rape is a terrorist institution. I think about everything I have to do when I leave the house and how scared I am moving through the world at night and in places I don't know, and such. And that feels like terrorism to me. So they, they agree. Or um, someone else might say, well, Claudia Card, she just, I, I don't understand her argument at all. I think she's wrong. The threat of rape and the threat of terrorism are completely different. You know, they're two different things. Sexual violence and the violence of terrorism are different. You know, bombing buildings and the threat of sexual violence, just, I don't see the connection at all. And then someone else might say, um, and actually one student in my class did say this, well, men are victims too, according to recent statistics. So those three responses, what I'll do is I'll put them up on the board and I'll say, all right, I, let's not focus on what these say, but let's focus on what these do. You know, what do these expressions or responses do in our conversation? So the first response is um, an understanding response. It's like, I see how this works. I understand Cody Carr's argument. This is something I haven't thought about. You know, I agree with her. The second response um, is a disagreement, so that's a form of resistance, but I'm going to introduce another term here. It's a form of resistance that gives us traction, and I'm going to call that epistemic traction. So what this student has done is heard the argument, understand it, but is engaging it in a way that moves the conversation forward in ways that are, are really helpful to the class. So that's a resistant response, but it's, it gets traction. The final response, the men are victims to response, doesn't engage it at all. And so what I introduce students to is the term shadow text. These are not responses, they're not engaged, there's no friction, they're shadow texts. So 
what the heck does that mean? <laughs> a shadow text is a response that kind of shadows the conversation like a detective would shadow a suspect. And for those of you who are fans of mystery novels, you know that detectives are never seen. They shadow their suspects in ways that, that don't call notice to themselves. So shadow texts, what they do is um, track an argument without engaging it. And what they do is they kind of herd it into different territories where the person feels safe. So the student who responded this way, um, is, it's, he's not disagreeing. He moves the conversation onto a more comfortable terrain, but he doesn't advance it. He's trying to derail it and make it into a conversation about Let's just talk about human-on-human -human violence. There's got no gender or age or race component to it all. It's just violence is violence, and it's bad, and we have to do something about it. And uh, that's not what the article is addressing. So shadow texts are not critical thinking. They're not skepticism. They're this, this other kinds of thing. I'm, a, I'm actually now understanding this metaphor of shadow even more than I was when I originally read your article. Think of it like the way wolves hunt where some wolves will sort of be shadow, like shadowing, as you say. But what they're doing is they're also, without the prey realizing it, they're directing where the prey is going to go. They, they shadow, but they also, it's hurting, basically. Um, and, and hurting without the prey maybe even realizing, right? They just stay far enough out of view. Maybe their scent is enough to get the prey to go into the trap, but it's... It's shadowing, but also really, really trying to take control. Yeah, and I, th I think that's accurate. Um, the reason I like the term shadow is it cuts a bunch of ways. And by definition, shadows are regions of opacity. They're regions where you can't see or feel or, or feel your way through that space well. So think about how light hits a glass sitting on your desk and then it casts a shadow. So it's an obstacle and obstacles are like, I haven't engaged the text, so it casts a shadow. And I like the metaphor of shadow for that reason, but also shadows are regions of epistemic opacity. So ignorance, right? The lack of knowledge or knowledge is muddy or it hasn't come into focus yet. Those responses are kind of in the shadows because the person there just hasn't quite understood what's going on or they push back because they're it's it's hit some deep feeling for them okay so now just if i get it correctly so you've got these three responses there's the understanding response i agree there's the resistance response but it's getting a little traction and it's engaging and then there's the shadow text response the pushback response okay and so you you get them all on the board and you ask the class without responding to these responses what do these responses do yeah and then where does the conversation hopefully go from there in conversations or you know in academia and discursive moves that we make um it, power circulates so another question i like to ask my students is you know how does power use these tools to um, move the conversation into different places where we feel safe and so the idea that epistemic pushback is something that's out there shouldn't be that surprising, given that, you know, we're inclined to derail conversations in all sorts of ways. And this happens to be a particular way. Even though we're familiar with this, this phenomena of derailing and moving things onto epistemic trains where we're comfortable, I think we uh, explain it in terms of, well, that person's a conversation hog or they're rude or they're a bad listener. 
But these moves have consequences for knowledge. And these sorts of moves are harmful to, uh, back to your workplace example, the people of color sitting around the table when this guy keeps saying, let's talk about, you know, everybody having privilege and then them having to sit through that. And there's a silencing that happens there. Right. And the rudeness and the chattiness analyses don't capture that. So suppose I'm someone like Bethany and I'm in the boardroom and I'm trying to get people to take the idea of systemic racism seriously. And I encounter epistemic pushback and I don't what, what does someone like Bethany do, right? I mean, you, you know, if you're, in a, if you're in a classroom setting and that's the main topic of conversation and part of the goal is to educate people on how to engage in dialogue, right? There's all these, I think, tools that you have available for yourself in the classroom. And so do you have any thoughts about epistemic pushback in the wild, outside of the classroom, in the boardroom? What do you think folks like Bethany ought to be thinking about or what can they do in advance to prepare themselves? Well, the first thing is to know that this happens and you name it and you see it and then you can engage it. And so a lot of times um, folks who push back don't know what they're doing or they, they do on some level, but they can't articulate it. And they also don't know that, the, that this is harmful, that there are epistemic harms that, that are happening here. So what Bethany would probably have to start thinking about is track it and just sort of keep a mental chart in her head about, okay, there it happened again, it happened again, it happened again. Because if she just turns on Chad right away and says, I've noticed that we were talking about discrimination and you changed the conversation. I want to be clear that this is talking about microaggressions and discrimination and problems in our workplace that I think we can do better with. And then he might say, I'm just saying. And you said, yeah, but we're, that, that's a different conversation. So the redirect is a good place to start. But I wouldn't just call Chad in on that right away. I would wait till other people keep making that move and then say, look, I've noticed as we're having this conversation, something very interesting is happening. And I'm really curious as to why every time I bring up uh, the possibility of trying to do better in the workplace around issues of, of race, the conversation goes here. It goes to privilege. It goes to white people too. It goes to I never owned slaves. I, it goes to I'm Native American. It goes to all these places, but it doesn't go here. So I wonder what's going on. And it's going to be part of a longer conversation, but I think naming it calls people in in a way that's a little gentle. And there's something else that you say that I find interesting, and I'm wondering how that might apply in, in a workplace setting, that uh, oftentimes, and correct me if I'm wrong, oftentimes epistemic pushback is coming from uh, maybe a place of anxiety uh, or or fear. Maybe that's not maybe maybe the person doesn't acknowledge, doesn't realize that's where it's coming from, but it's it's worry about losing something. And I believe you said that when dialogue uh, or talking points are coming from a place of anxiety, you know engaging in critical discussion about the point made might not even be that effective because it's not it's not coming from they've seen the philosophical light and this really rings true to them it's that there's a kind of anxiety here and that anxiety is making something seem really relevant and so arguing against that point if it's seeming true because of the anxiety arguing against the point might not do that much good is that sort of no and i don't think it does i think that comes later and uh I think you can do this in the workplace. What's certainly been helpful to me in my classrooms is I've 
cultivated a habit of reading students' bodies in their reactions. And then you can kind of intuit what's going on because people have defensive postures or they, they, you know, start looking at their phones or they get really nervous or they get really distracted. And so if you can notice discomfort in the boardroom or in the workplace, it's like, boy, people are getting fidgety. What's that about? And so you name it and then you can turn to Chad and say, well, gosh, you know, you, you're getting, it looks like you're uncomfortable with this conversation. You want to say more about that. And they might shut down more and they might not. But it, that is anxiety, and it's, again, the loss or a challenge to the worldview. And, you know, we can't get through all this stuff unless we walk into that pain. There's a very real kind of pain there that people don't want to go there. I get that. You know, as a white woman, I get that the pain of racism and white supremacy, all that stuff is in my body. And walking into that and examining it and, and owning it is, takes a great deal of courage, and it's very frightening. So there's no reason, I mean, there's a good reason that we shut down and we numb ourselves and we avoid and we diverge. The ideal philosopher in me kind of has this thought of when you're in a disagreement with someone, you just come to the table with a better argument, right? You just, you, it's, it's a, ra it's like, it's a rational, like you have an argument. I'm going to show you clearly why one of your premises is wrong. And I'm going to give you these three arguments for why my position is right. And then, you know, dust my hands off, uh, the job is done, uh, but but that that presupposes that everybody is really just dispassionately interested in the quest for truth, right? And so, but your point about sometimes people's views not stemming from a dispassionate, rational pursuit of the truth, but stemming from anxiety, suggests that a a general strategy is whatever could be done to get people more comfortable managing their anxiety and, and working through that. So like, it sounded like what you were saying was sort of a version of that. Like, hey, that made you uncomfortable. Do you want to talk more about it, right? You're, you're giving them a space to get that anxiety out onto the table and have a conversation about it. Yeah, and it might not be a safe space, but my own view is there are no safe spaces. And we just have to have a lot of courage because a closed mind means you have a closed heart too. If you talk to like, um, white people that are working on this, they're resistant and resistant. And when they have a break point moment, what happens is they're like, they hear over and over and over again, how hard it is to move through the world in a body of color or an indigenous body. And then something gets to them, like a friend of them gets hurt in a way that's really violent. And then they're like, oh my God, I had no idea. And then their heart softens and then you can work with them. But you can't work with them before that because the habits of whiteness hold that in place so, so very deeply. And it's in all of us. Allison, you've been working on a book that deals with the, these issues related to pushback among other kinds of related kinds of issues surrounding this. Is that right? Yeah, I have a book called The Weight of Whiteness, Feminist Engagements with Privilege, Race, and Ignorance. And it's coming out as part of uh, the Philosophy of Race series that George Yancey is editing with Lexington Books. And it'll be out this coming spring. It's got a couple chapters in it on privilege and white talk and epistemic pushback. And the last two chapters are on the weight of whiteness and how it's inherited through white ancestries and US history. Well, I look forward to reading it when it comes out. Me too. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much, Allison, for joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
And thanks to you all for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. I'm Andy Cullison. We hope that you are staying safe and healthy in this crisis. We also hope you can take some of what we've discussed here and get it to work. If you have a question about business ethics you'd like answered on the podcast, email me, Kate Barry, at katherineberry at depaw.edu, and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air. And if you like what you've been hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to learn more about what Allison and Andy talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org slash work. That's all one word, get ethics to work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is still the best way for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.